Now, I'm going to be quiet and invite someone up who I know is going to do an amazing job, and that is our brother Mark Bocanegra about starting a missions culture. And I want to read just a little bit about our brother Mark. Let's see. So Mark served as a cooperating missionary and pastor of Oyemino. Hey, there we go. Oyemino Christ, uh, pastor of Oyemino Christ Church in Chiba, Japan for the past two years. Mark is an ordained PCA minister in the South Coast Presbytery, and he graduated from Westminster, California as well, Westminster Seminary. Mark grew up in Tokyo for 10 years and in Manila for eight years. He then became a Christian and felt called to ministry while he was an undergraduate at Stanford University. He then worked in Rakuten, a large internet company in Tokyo, before heading to seminary. He met his wife, Mogomi, praise God, during his time in Japan, and they now have three daughters, Katie, Nina, and Sarah. For their next term, he is now called to pastor Kahin Makori Grace Church and plant their second congregation. So, guys, with that, let's give him a round of applause and Mark... Floor is yours, brother. All right. Good morning. Um, so I get the question: uh, What is a missions culture, and how do you get it going? Right. And um, when I got that question, I was like, I'm set up for failure. <laughs> you know why? You know why? It's because of this. Um, it's like asking a, a pastor: um, How do you encourage your people to pray? Uh, how do you encourage your people to worship better? How do you encourage your people to evangelize? It's kind of the same thing, right? First is it's humbling because it's an excavate question. It's like first before you teach, you know, um, do you have a missional record to actually talk about this, right? And if you look at my life, it's like, oh, I, I get, I'm like average D student, you know? Um, and the second thing, it, it's pretty much impossible. Imagine, um, it, it's, it's like asking a pastor to drag totally corrupt, sinful, and selfish people to be sanctified, obedient, and self-sacrificing, right? It's like trying to herd a cat to have a swim in, in a beach, right? Just like, it's all right. Uh, and a third thing is, I think this is for pastors, it feels burdensome. It's like another responsibility among the million things a pastor has to do. And forming a missions culture seems like another Christian plate you have to keep spinning without trying to kind of drop the other plates, right? It's, that's what I would feel if someone was like, all right, do, you know, could, you, could you start a missional church? And that's honestly how I would um, think of it. But one of the things that, as I was reflecting on this, is that we need to remember that this question is like, any other question in regards to sanctification, in regards to um, any other spiritual discipline. There's really nothing new about this question, and it's kind of like the gospel. We just have to rethink basic things and apply it to a different field of life. So we just really need to first think about, you know, what we need to be careful about our motivation. Are we doing this in a self-reliant, dutiful, pharisaical way? Or is this born out of a thankfulness, a passion, a zeal for God? We need to be careful of neither overemphasizing human means, but we don't also don't want to underemphasize human means, right? We have to kind of balance that. And the one thing about sanctification is that you need to be realistic, right? You're not going to be you're, you're not going to be the perfect 
but if I give a talk on prayer, you're not going to have a wonderful prayer life the next day, right? It takes time. So you have to have a realistic expectation of what it means to grow as a missional church. And lastly, we just need to have a healthy reliance on our Trinitarian God. Um, We have to rely on the kindness of our self-sacrificial missional father. We need to rely on the perfect righteousness of the ultimate missionary, Jesus Christ. And lastly, we need to have a healthy reliance on the miracle-working kingdom advancer, the Holy Spirit. But before I kind of launch into kind of what what I think a missional church is and how to do it, um, I, as you probably can see, I'm like probably the youngest, one of the youngest guys in this room and probably one of the most inexperienced missionary, uh, missionaries in this room as well. So I'm not going to pretend that I know what I'm talking about, right? I'm, all I'm going to do is just kind of piggyback on our older brother in the faith, Paul, and just to explain to how he thought um, what a missional culture uh, and how a missional culture is um, kind of in, encouraged by looking at the Philippian church and the Colossian church. Um, and my hope is merely to kind of recast basic principles of sanctification and just applying it to, to, um, to, to encouraging missions. Um, again, nothing new here. Every, don't, don't, if you're looking for like a new paradigm, that, you, you've got the wrong guy, get your money back, that's not me. I'm just, we're just going to go back to the basics and major in the majors. And um, if you're here for how-to's, that's great. I think there's a lot of principles that we can talk about, but um, I only have basically 30 to 45 minutes to talk about so many things that we could do. Um, and if you're not interested in kind of the basics, just Google MTW Establishing an Effective Missions Program. Um, MTW has like a really nice packet on actual practical things you could do. So Google that. Establishing an F- Effective Missions Program, MTW. Google it. You'll have a good... Uh, PDF for that. So, but before, so let me just kind of launch into kind of basic principles of the what and the how of missions culture. So first, what is a missions culture? What is a missions culture? And I put it in one sentence. It's a long sentence, but that's like my bad habit. So anyway, just bear with me. What is a missions culture? We are not given the option to merely support missionaries dutifully but commanded to co-suffer joyfully with them. We are not given the option to merely support missionaries dutifully, but commanded to co-suffer joyfully with them. And missions culture isn't, I remember one missionary told me, it's like missions isn't rocket science, it's just a lot of hard work. Um, And it's very simple. And having a missions, missional church, is a church that is a, an obedient, self-denying, and joyful servant to the Lord of the harvest. An obedient, self, a self-denying, and joyful servant of the Lord of the harvest. And those are the three principles that I just want to talk about when it comes to um, what is uh, a missional church. So first, an obedient church. A missional church is an obedient church, and that the Great Commission is not an option, but a command. I think too often mission, missional is like kind of a synonym for like zeal, uh, passion, enthusiasm, risk-taking, proactiveness, right? And, uh, and that, that's part of it, right? That's really part of it. But I don't think that's foundational. I mean, if you look at Matthew 23, the woes to the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were passionate, zealous, 
risk-taking and proactive evangelists. But they were essentially cursed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you could be absolutely zealous, but absolutely disobedient. And if you just look at the Westminster, uh, anyway, too often we overly emphasize the go of the Great Commission, but we forget what comes at the very end. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. If we are not committed to teach and obey all the commandments, we have no business to go to all the nations. And I think many of us in the Reformed um, camp kind of, it's like, yeah, we need to, we need to teach the whole counsel of God. And I think everybody would agree to that. But turning that on its head and saying, I want to reiterate a very basic truth that I think is very underemphasized. The Great Commission is not an extracurricular activity. It is a direct commandment, a marching order from our King, the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the king says to us, his under-shepherds, his stewards, his servants, go therefore make disciples of, not your neighborhood, not your city, not your nation, all nations. But don't worry, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, and I will be with you. But go make disciples of all nations. And remember, at this point, every single nation was an unreached people group. This is obviously, and also this is kind of like very uncomfortable for the Jewish people, for the 12 Jewish fishermen who have been very kind of ethnocentric. But I could say that, be comforted if, you, if that makes you uncomfortable, because the American church, I think, loves their nation very much. But we, we, the, the king is telling us, not just your nation, all nations. But one thing that I thought was very interesting was um, when I was at uh, seminary, a fellow intern at my local church who eventually became a missionary with me uh, said this about um, Reformed uh, folk. And he said that a lot of Reformed preachers or Christians um, love Christ-centered preaching. Uh, Maybe some of you don't like it, but that's fine. But generally speaking, we look to Luke 24 and we say that is the chair text of Christ-centered preaching. It's teaching us that throughout all of the scriptures, it points to Jesus Christ and how he died, rose, and ascended to the heavens. What's really interesting is that they don't read till verse 47 and 48 of Luke 24. It says that through all, that all scriptures proclaim a Christ-centered, gospel-centered gospel truth that should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Sometimes we get really excited about Luke 24, about the Christ-centered nature of the scripture, that we neglect the commandment that is mandated in that same text. We are called by our Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim Christ through all scripture. However, we are also mandated to proclaim that all of scripture testifies to the Great Commission as well. Not only is this scripture Christ-centric, but also missions-centric. 
do we preach for the pastors here, for the Bible studies here earlier? Do we preach, teach, and pray that the Great Commission is throughout all of the scriptures? Are we be, are we actually being in, obedient to the entire hermeneutical, hermeneutical lens that is presented in Luke twenty four? Are we just cherry picking? Like what we say to other denominations, oh, you're cherry picking that verse. It's like we're, we're cherry picking. Sometimes we're cherry picking Luke 24, our chaired text. Do we understand that the imperative of gospel centeredness, Christ centeredness, cannot be separated from the imperative of bringing the gospel and Christ to all nations? As many of you know, the letter to the Philippians is a missionary sending a letter of thanks to his supporter. Uh, the Philippian church. And while Paul says in uh, chapter 1, verses 5, that he is thankful for their partnership in the gospel, he specifically meant financially laboring, uh, financially supporting his labors and being committed to missions, as we see in chapter 1, verses 7. But what's really interesting is to see that, do you see how he um, says thank you? He, if you look at verses 6, he, he saw their participation in missions as God beginning a good work in the Philippians to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's like a chair text for reform folk, chapter 1, verses 6, where people love this verse because it talks about the perseverance of the saints, that God will support each and every Christian from beginning to the end, and that the, he would grow them and sanctify them to the end uh, to the end, uh, to the day of Christ. But what's really important is that what spurs him to say that text is the Philippian church's mission and involvement. That he sees that their mission's involvement as a fruit of sanctification, as being obedient to the Great Commission. And that is what Paul is so happy about. He's not happy that, oh, I get a lot of cash from the Philippians, and we'll talk. It's not, it's not that much cash, actually. What he's really happy about is that the Philippian church is obeying the king of the Great Commission. And if you rob the people of the opportunity of being involved with missions, you rob them of an opportunity to grow in their Christian walk. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about your Christian walk as well? You could say that the missional church is not at first a zealous church, but an obedient church. The second thing, a self A missional church is a self-denying church. And the church is called to co-suffer, not support. I actually don't like the word support. I I, I use it all the time, but I actually don't think it's like the best word. We're called to co-suffer with missionaries. One of my pet peeves as a missionary is when churches or people think that missionaries that go suffer more than, than churches and individuals that send. When I hear support, I think of a kind of like an image as like missionaries as boxers in the ring, right? And while supporters provide water, encouragement, some physical care after every round so that um, the missionary can stay in the ring. But what's the difference? Missionaries are taking all the punches and the supporters don't, you know? (laughs) It's like the sending church outsources the suffering for the Great Commission to missionaries. And I, I think that's actually not even missional. That's like disobedient. Not, not even biblical. Because we must fight the belief that someone can get a free pass for suffering for the Great Commission. And all of you know what the Lord Jesus said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, 
wife, children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross come and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. No one can voluntarily step out of the ring. Because it isn't about whether you feel called to missions, whether you're interested in a certain nation, whether you have the financial or human resources to be involved. That has nothing to do with it. It's actually about our obedience to the lordship of Christ. One MTW recruited back years ago summarized this kind of call in this way. And I just want you to hear this. If you are not willing to go, I'm not telling you to go, but if you're not open to go, you're not qualified to stay. We are all called to be obedient to the Lord of the harvest, to obey the king who has all authority in heaven. And the Philippian church is a wonderful example of this. The start and end of the letter shows clearly um, that his primary intention is to thank uh, them of their co-suffering. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 5, and Philippians chapter 4, verses 10, he actually um, describes his um, kind of partnership as koinonia. We usually hear like koinonia as like fellowship, and we imagine this kind of like warm, organic, heartwarming, relational fellowship where you have nice, you know, like a nice hangout. But actually that word, that Greek word, is, describes business contracts, formal agreements, and actually marriage contracts. It was a formal partnership, business partnership sometimes, legal partnership. And later he uses the same word in chapter 4, verses 16, and he describes this partnership with the Philippians as being partners or co-fellowshippers with me in my affliction. And I think that's a wonderful description of ascending church. What, what does this mean? First, they gave money sacrificially. It's pretty clear that Paul was happy about the fi- Philippians' financial contributions, but it wasn't amount, the amount that they were happy about. It was hit their willingness. The Philippian church is the same church that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9. The Philippians were new converts and dead broke. However, they literally begged Paul to take their money for missions. Would you give to missions generously if, you're still, if your church budget is still in the red? Second, they cared for Paul sacrificially. The Philippians didn't blindly send a check. They were concerned for the physical and spiritual well-being of Paul, and that's why they prayed constantly. They tried to find out the needs of Paul, and they sent money and able men, Epaphroditus, uh, to Paul. And are you willing to sacrifice worship airtime to pray for missions? Have you, have you, are you willing to send your most able session members, lay leaders, to missions. Third, they co-labored with Paul sacrificially. And I think Anthony just made this point. I don't really need to hammer it. I, I, I'm going to remind you that this is a really important point. They were passionately concerned for the advancement of the gospel, not only globally, but also locally, if you see in Philippians 1. They did not outsource the suffering of evangelism to Paul in Rome. They did, the, did it themselves locally even to the point of physical persecution. 
Are we engaged also in the task of evangelism? When was the last time you shared the gospel to a non-believer? When was the last time you actually persecuted for that? And one of the kind of modern examples of like the Philippian churches, I think, um, Andrew Fuller. Maybe you've heard of him before. Andrew Fuller was the founder of the uh, Baptist missionary in 1792. And when a missionary, a very famous mission, when a missionary presented the spiritual needs of India, the secretary of the meeting remarked, there is a gold mine in India, but it seems almost as deep as the center of the earth. Who will venture to explore it? And the very famous missionary, William Carey, said, I will venture to go down, but remember that you must hold the rope. And Andrew Fuller held the rope for Carey. Suffering the loss of his first wife and eight of their 11 children, Fuller persevered in the midst of severe affliction and overwhelming responsibilities in order to partake in the labor and suffering of missions. And after, many me- after meeting many of, m- of my supporters this past kind of months, I know for a fact that many of my supporters suffer in the same way as Fuller. They continue to faithfully give even if they're going through a bout of cancer, even if they're unemployed, even if they're going through, the, uh, through financial difficulty. They still give, and they're like, don't worry about it. We got you covered. Are they not suffering? I think they are. And I would actually argue that Paul believed that the suffering, this is the really key thing, the suffering of senders are more significant than the suffering of goers. He says so in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What is he saying here? Paul is literally in chains, possibly waiting to be executed. And he equates his suffering to being the poor man's offering of the drink offering. And not only that, he says, I'm not, I'm not the main course, actually. I'm just the dressing. I'm just the topping on your greater suffering, the Philippian church. And I always get weird looks when I say this. Do you believe that it takes more suffering to send rather than to go? And notice in chapter 2, verses 18, he calls the Philippian church to rejoice, which is the third characteristic of a missional church. A joyful church, a church that does not dutifully forbear, but joyfully suffers and What's really funny is that one of the great themes in the Philippians, in the, uh, the letter to the Philippians, is uh, to rejoice, right? And if you've done any study, it's just hard to miss. It's just like, are they like depressed? Are they like, you know, it's like, what, what, what's wrong with the Philippian church, right? But I think this is an important theme as well and tests kind of like our motivation of um, our motivation when we get involved with missions. It tests our motivation of obedience and suffering. It's always very, very easy to fall into the trap of becoming a Martha or becoming the Ephesian church in Revelation 2 who are very, who's very obedient, who's suffering, but they've forgotten their first love. Although the Philippian church was the model of obedience and suffer, uh, sacrifice, Paul wanted to teach them something about finding joy in it, right? And that's why as the more kind of experienced, joyful sufferer of missions, he shares his secret. 
of how he can do this. And if you, of course, this is, very, this is not, again, this basic stuff, but Philippians 3. In the context of suffering for the missions, he says this, whatever I gain, uh, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung or rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and found in him. And right after that, he calls the Philippian church to join him in imitating him in his joyful suffering. Why? Because we have set our minds on heavenly things and we rejoice that we are citizens in heaven and not of this world. And I really do think the Philippian church, um, I kind of took this to heart because if you look at 2 Corinthians 8, I mean, that's what Paul does, right? Paul actually commends the Philippian church to the Corinthians and he says to the Corinthians, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And what's really funny is he says churches of Macedonia, but the only, only church that's giving is the Philippian church, right? The dead broke church, right? And he says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their, according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The Philippian church was so gripped by their joy in the gospel that they begged to give, even if they were deep in deep poverty, because it was their joy to partake in the Great Commission. I've just kind of outlined to you these three characteristics, but, you know, as for me, as the tired, pessimistic, kind of cynical pastor, it's like, all right, I get it, Mark. This is the image, but how do I get this going? And what I would say is that the easiest thing to do, at least what I've noticed in my very short two years, is to kind of like guilt trip you into it, right? We're all disobedient. We're all soft. We're all joyless servants. Now go do better. You're really bad, right? And what's interesting is that you'll probably like, maybe tomorrow you're like very convicted, but you forget by Monday. You know? um, that's like the reality if, if, if you're pastoring someone. You're just like, oh, okay. It doesn't work. So sometimes you're like, just whack that whip again, right? You got, you're still disobedient. But one of the things that I really um, have learned from Paul um, in his letter to Colossians is that he doesn't do that. He actually ends this beautiful letter with a phrase, remember my chains. I love it. Remember my chains. What does he mean by this? When you see, he's saying, when you see these chains, I re- just remember that I suffered not to give you a burden. I suffered to give you the gospel, my friends. Many pastors know that Colossians is kind of one of the most Christ-centered, gospel-centered letters. And however, many people overlook the fact that Paul actually ends the entire letter with the commandment to pray and live for the Great Commission in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. 
And when he calls the Colossians to pray for the Great Commission and live for the Great Commission, he says it to do it with thanksgiving and to be watchful and hope. And I think he wants us to recall the meat of the, Colossian, the letter to the Colossians and to remind us of the two things to be thankful for and the one thing to be hopeful for. And again, this is basic gospel, but the basics are the, are the sweetest truths in the Christian life. The first thing Paul wants us to be thankful for is this. I have suffered. I am in change because I wanted to deliver to you the mystery of God. Do you realize that you have the mystery of God? All other religions say that you have to climb up that heavenly ladder, that divine ladder, to attain those divine truths and attain some sort of nirvana. But no, I, Paul, worked on your behalf. I, Paul, labored so that you can receive it for free. And that that gospel, that mystery of God is Christ himself, which you can attain unilaterally by grace alone with no sacrifice on our our part. And that Jesus Christ, the the mystery of God that you have, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom all the fullness of God dwells, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, salvation from the kingdom of darkness, and citizenship in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, We right now, whether you kind of feel it or not, we have the mystery of God. Have you forgotten that? And Paul, and secondly, says, have you forgotten to be thankful that you have been changed by this mystery of God? That we were once totally depraved, corrupt corpses, but because of this mystery of God, we we are able to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord. You, that, all other religions say that you kind of work that. You, you, you have these spiritual disciplines and kind of create this kind of conversion experience. But no, the Holy Spirit breathed life into the valley of dry bones that is your heart. And you had your heart, stone, your heart of stone turned into heart of flesh. And that because of that, you have grown as a Christian these past year, these past couple of years. Not because of your works but because of the grace of God alone and the last thing the last thing that he reminds us is this are you watchful for the coming of Christ my friends a lot of times at least in Japan when I say the second day uh, the last day is coming we kind of they kind of like climb up and get nervous because it's kind of like the final exam for them it's like my friends it is not the final exam it's your wedding day Are we being watchful for the day when Christ brings us home to heaven, clothes you with the bright white wedding gown, gives you the crown of the royal family, and gives us the inheritance of Christ, and has every single being in the universe declare praises to you as they declare praises to Christ? And it is those three foundational things, the two things that you have to be thankful for, and the one thing that you'd be hopeful for, that allows us, to suffer, to be obedient, suffer, and be joyful for the Great Commission. Without those three foundational things, everything that I talked about will seem burdensome. It is with those things. But with these three things, rich in our lives, every single sacrifice will be light and pleasurable. 
perhaps our passion for missions and kingdom advancement dwindled because our thanksgiving for the gospel and our hope of heaven is kind of dislodged in a weird way. The second thing, what I think what he implies by remember my chains is this. And I think this is the one that struck me the most. You know, you hear the gospel every, every Sunday, so you're like, okay, yeah, you did the gospel-centered thing. But this was the thing that really hit me. When you see these chains, remember that you are direct beneficiaries of the Great Commission. Many times we think that the Great Commission is kind of like this thing outside of us, like we're observers and third parties. But if you look at kind of the um, mission reports in verses 7 to 17 of Colossians, it's kind of like a family tree. It starts out with Paul, the apostle, laboring to bring the gospel. And then secondly, there's these Jewish missionaries that emerge to reach the nations. And then these Jewish missionaries, kind of after that, is this third generation of Gentile missionaries. And he does this really, I don't know, I, I call it the subtle Asian guilt trip. And he says, like, you know one of these gentle missionaries is your church planner, Epaphras. And he says, might I remind you that the reason why Epaphras planted that church is because he heard the gospel from me. That the reason why you have a church right here at your local neighborhood is because of the Great Commission. Have you forgotten the fact that people have suffered for the Great Commission so that you can be Christians? One thing that we need to remind ourselves is this. How many people did it take How much effort did it take for you to sit in this room right now? This includes those who are children as well. Think about your Christian parents, if you had Christian parents. (coughs) Think about your Sunday school teachers, if you kind of grew up in the church. Your Bible study leaders, your co-members, your college ministry friends and staff, your pastors, your elders, your deacons, your just friends in church, and even generationally, think if you're a Presbyterian here, think about the Presbyterians who fled the persecution in England to plant the church here in the U.S. Think about the many saints of the Reformation, the medieval church and the early church who sacrificed and labored so that we could have a proper understanding of God, Scripture, and ourselves and be delivered to us the gospel in our vernacular. How many times do you think these people prayed for you? How many hours, how much energy, how many dollars did they pour into you and sacrifice for you in order for you to be where you are now? I always, I, these statistics are old, but um, they give a good sense of scale. Um, um, in, in, mission, in mission, uh, missions, we use these um, statistics like um, ministry dollars per baptism, right? Um, these statistics are old, so for example, the largest unreached people group is Bangladesh. It's $7,500 per Baptism, China is about $20,000. Saudi, Saudi Arabia is $200,000. And um, Taiwan is about $700,000. And I would say Japan, I, I, I always joke, this is the statistic I shouldn't share with supporters, but I do anyway. Japan is $2.7 million per baptism. And then people say, wow. But do you know how much it costs for an American? $1.5 million. The reason why is because there's so much money here. Think of an annual budget versus divided by baptism. 
There's a lot of money here. And what, but that's not the point. What I'm saying is, do you think people, the people who sacrificed you and said, for you and said, Mark, $1.5 million. Oh my gosh, well, Jesus told me to give it. Fine, fine. Do you think they did that? No. They said, I have the mystery of God. I was changed by it. And I'm waiting for my wonderful bridegroom to give me the inheritance of Christ and seat me at the right hand of the Father. $1.5 million chump change. Lastly, when you see these chains, and I think this is the point that I kind of want to bring home, is that he wanted to say that, remember that I suffered for you so that you may suffer for the Great Commission. That these chains are a model. I think this phrase is also called to model Paul. I think the best lesson to both the Colossians and the Philippians, of course, is the gospel, um, uh, recounting the wonderful truth of the gospel, uh, recounting the wonderful history of our church. But many times, even if you teach those things, it doesn't really stick. Uh, if you, if you, I, I teach Sunday school every week or at, back in my church, and it really doesn't really matter at what you say that week. It's about how you model it to the children. And it was, the, I think, the actual model of Paul as he obeyed and suffered with joy for the Great Commission that spurred them on. The Colossians, as they received the report from Tychius and Onesimus, um, they probably would have heard the report of Acts, the end of Acts 28. And they would have heard this. When they had appointed a day for Paul, they came to Paul at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Is this a a man on house arrest waiting for his execution? It is, but it doesn't look like it, right? Sometimes, even if you have the right theology, even if you have the right organizational structure, the right motivation to do missions, I think it all hinges on how you model it. Every spectacular supporter that I have, every missionary that I've met, Every missions, com- like wonderful missions committee, and you ask, you ask them, like, why, why, why are you involved in these things? Usually they mention a person that modeled it for them. A Christian brother or sister, a parent or a mentor. And rather than talking about how to get a missional church going, one thing I want to challenge us is this. How to... How do, how do we get that going in our lives? And how do we disciple people by modeling it? Are we living a life that models a missional lifestyle of obedience, self-sacrifice, and joy to our congregants? And one of the, let that sink here, but don't let that, don't let yourself fall into a dis, kind of mode of despair and hopelessness as well. Because one thing that I, what I just told to you is basically one of the hardest things that, basically the essence of the Christian life, right? 
And what we must remember, and I, I always have to remind this of, uh, especially in Asian contexts where kind of suffering for the Great Commission is kind of put on a pedestal, right? We must remember that Paul and then the apostles are not the epitome of suffering, self-sacrifice, and obedience. We, missionaries, no, don't look at us, right? Don't look at your pastors. The only person that you, the reason why they, ha- they were so motivated to, the, to, to do missions is because they had the perfect model in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ's mission was Calvary. Right? And when he charged up Calvary Hill, right, he wasn't just zealous. He was completely obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. He was self-sacrificial in the sense that even though he was perfectly righteous for those 30 years, even if he was falsely accused, he said, my life is not important to me. What's more important is giving it to the people that I want, that I love. And lastly, do you think he did it begrudgingly? No. <laughs> he did it with the utmost joy and said, if this is what it takes to have my bride join me in heaven, absolutely worth it. And our endeavors in the mission field it doesn't rest on our obedience. It doesn't rest on our self-denial. It doesn't rest on how joyful we are. It actually rests completely on Christ, which is great news for us failures, right? Because even if we're like complete failures here, the Great Commission still advances, right? It still advances. And what these, remember my change is a wonderful reminder for Paul. For us, it says that, here, like, remember my chains, right? I'm bound, but the word is not. Don't fear suffering for the Great Commission. And Jesus would say the same thing. Look at my nails on my hands. People thought I was a complete failure. I was a hanging dead corpse on a Roman plank of wood, and people thought I was a joke. But where are we now? I have resurrected. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I am the Lord and Savior of this world. And I have commissioned you to go do, to make disciples of all nations. Don't be scared. Be encouraged. And don't think that these obstacles, these failures can deter you. No, the kingdom will advance anyway. Don't think that your sins will deter the, 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 the mission. Don't worry. I've, I've had a lot of sinners in the past 2,000 years. Don't worry about that. Go be obedient. Deny yourself and do it with joy because we are the sons of God. So that's all I have here. Let, is it okay if I pray for us? Oh, good. Yeah. There you go. Pray, pray. Okay, I'll, I'll pray for us. And then I'm, I, I will have like an open, I don't know, I, I was told to do Q&A, but it's kind of weird to do like, I did it kind of like sermon-esque, right? But we'll have Q&A after this. But let's, let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, um, I thank you, Lord, uh, for the Great Commission. Um, Father, the Great Commission is a big burden 
it's a lot of sacrifice, and we are so disobedient. But I, I thank you, Lord, that this great commission is completed in a certain sense, that we don't need to finish it. No, we are on the victory lap. We have already won because Jesus has conquered death, sin, and Satan, Lord. And we are only gathering people into the wedding feast, Father. And I pray, Lord, with much joy, with much expectation, with much thankfulness, Father, may we be obedient. May we be self-sacrificial. May we do with joy and suffer for the Great Commission. Lord, encourage us because, Father, we're tired, we're sinful, um, and we, we, we lose hope. But pray, I pray, Lord, that the, the weekly preaching of the gospel would nourish us, that the fellowship of the believers here would remember that we are not alone, but, Father, that the history of the great church that we have for these past 2,000 years would be a wonderful spur for us that the kingdom is advancing um, no, matter, um, no matter how much of a failure we are. We thank you, Lord, for that comfort and hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, all right, let's, let's take two questions. <laughs> yes. Thank, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate uh, everything you said. Um, when you disciple, uh, what are some of the things that you do to, to encourage a missional culture within the particular disciple, and how that kind of that that culture within uh, discipleship ministry? Right. So I usually like sharing this. Um, I don't do it very well, right? But I, I have a wonderful um, example of this. So I, I, I come from a Reformed confessional denomination. So we were, t- I was teaching, I had a Westminster Confession faith class on like the high theology of, tr- of the Trinity. And I thought I did a really good job. I applied it and things like that. And we had, I had two women as we kind of prayed, um, two very mature women kind of prayed and said, um, thank you for this meeting. I thank you for the word. Thank you that you are a Trinitarian God. Then she went, both of those women started praying using this Trinitarian, high Trinitarian theology and prayed for their non-Christian spouse. Like, as a seminarian, I thought I was like, I I got it covered. But I was like, I never think of that kind of application. And I think one thing that we, one of the things that, that taught me was no matter how high or how low you, you teach, uh, the, the theology that you teach, that there is this constant um, application of, to the lost, to the, the lost near you. And I think I don't do that very well in my prayers. And I don't know where she, I think she learned that from actually my, my team leader probably, who always constantly prayed for the lost. And I think modeling that is probably a good start uh, maybe. Um, and, being ex- constantly exposed to non-Christians um, and to constantly pray for those. Another thing that um, was helpful, at least for my team leaders, he would basically literally take me on like walks and just say hi to everybody. And then, just, and then after he said hi, he said, let's pray for that person. That kind of modeling it of like constant, he, in, in Japan, street preaching doesn't really work, but like constant like meeting people 
and then praying for them. And when you meet them, you bring them. It's like, well, why don't you come to our thing? But just that constant awareness of the lost was modeled to me, and I think that was helpful. I don't know if that answered your question, but all right. All right. Thank you. You know, um, that was a great question, Pastor Lamb. We have something, a mission to the world called the Gospel and Grace Curriculum. And what that is, it's uh, basically a discipleship curriculum, and it's meant to not only disciple people in a gospel, Christ-centered manner, but it's also uh, in a, it, it's a way to get people to also go overseas as well, or to be missions-minded in some way, shape, or form. So uh, this one is called Gospel and Grace. It's on our MTW website. It's a great curriculum to be used um, with a small group, with individual uh, believers. You can do so with your family, with yourself. I would encourage you guys to take a look. And again, it's about applying the gospel to our lives. And then also, how does that gospel fuel us, as Mark so wonderfully talked about, how does that fuel us to get the gospel out to our, our communities locally, but also globally as well. The final two parts are going to be called kingdom and mission, and then culture and context, and that'll be coming out. Uh, the next part will be out, Lord willing, next year, and then possibly later that year or 2021. So what we have now, guys, we're going to have a 10-minute break. It's 1016. Uh, we'll convene back again uh, at 1025 to hear from our next uh, wonderful speaker, David Diasso. So feel free to get up. Again, cartwheels, jumping jacks, use the restroom, snacks, whatever you guys would like.